Kids, you're welcome to stay as well, up to parents, of course. But will you turn with me this morning to Exodus chapter 28? We're actually going to cover another big, giant chunk this week from chapter 27, verse 20, all the way through 30, verse 10. But we'll start out in chapter 28. If you don't know me, my name is Josh Bond. Um, My wife, Gracie, is famous at Church on Mill for good reason. Um, But I'm the other half. Uh, I completed a residency here. A couple, uh, about a year ago I finished and have been here as a member ever since. In short, I am a product of the love and the investment and the family at Church on Mill. So I just want to begin by saying thank you for loving me and Gracie well. Um, we are so delighted to be a part of this church family. As Hansley said in an email to the worship team this week, apparently priest is more than a street in Tempe. (laughs) I didn't want that wisdom to be confined to just a few of us, so. Thanks for starting us off well, Hansley. The text we're in today introduces us to the priesthood, uh, in, in particular Aaron, the high priest. We've got a lot of Moses in Exodus, but now what's the deal with Aaron? Last week, Brandon did a really wonderful job of introducing us to the tabernacle. Thank you, Brandon. Um, Brandon reminded us that the tabernacle uh, was patterned after the heavenly things, that it's the place, this tent, where God would be present among his people. Of course, God is present everywhere, right? He fills the heavens and the earth, Jeremiah says. But when we talk about God's presence in the tabernacle, it's a relational presence. Just like we say a father or a spouse might be present or physically there and not present depending on his relationship, on the way he acts. So God's presence in the tabernacle is indicative of the special relationship he has with Israel. His allowing them to see who he is. His accepting them even. Doesn't that fit with everything we've seen in Exodus so far? From hearing Israel's cry to his great acts of salvation, to the Passover, to the law, to the tabernacle, God has been revealing himself that he would be known by his people. That's the big theme of Exodus, that God wants to be known by his people and draw them to himself. That's what Exodus is all about, and yet, maybe you've noticed this tension in the book of Exodus, where we keep coming to the presence of God and having a boundary drawn. Moses is told, don't come too near this burning bush. God's presence is there. Israel, God's glory is on the mountain, but don't touch the mountain. God's holiness is there. Even the tabernacle, there's a veil in front of the Holy of Holies where God would be present. The people are told that you are not yet holy to enter God's holy presence. You're not yet ready. There's this tension. God draws people to himself, but their unholiness and their sin bars them from his presence. Part of coming to know God is reckoning with his utter holiness, his glory, his beauty. Paul, even in the New Testament, says God dwells in unapproachable light. 
1 Timothy 6.16, unapproachable. That's a, that's a hard word for us. To think of God who supposedly loves us, calling him unapproachable. That's a hard word. Sometimes we want to say, oh, that was the Old Testament God. The New Testament changed all that. And there's an important sense in which that's true. But today we are in Exodus, and it's here to instruct us about God's holiness. Unapproachable is a hard word for us, but church, let's listen to it. Let's bear with it. Because that's where the priests enter in. God's holiness because we are sinful, separates us from God, and yet he gives us the holy place where he will draw near to us. And that's where the priests come in, because the priests are the mediators. So our our main kind of point in the text we'll develop today is that priests consecrate God's people for God's presence. You're not ready for God's presence yet, but by the priest's ministry, you may be consecrated, made holy. Holy priests consecrate God's people for God's presence. So we'll look at kind of three points in that. First, the priests minister God's presence. The priests mediate as a double representative between, they represent God to the people and the people to God. The priests mediate, and the end result is the priests make people holy. Make the people of God holy. They minister God's presence, they mediate, they make the people holy. Brandon is contagious. I didn't mean to make that alliterate, but it did. That was God's providence. Well, let's look at our passage then. What is a priest? The first thing to see is that the priests minister God's presence to the people, at the very least symbolically, right? We want to jump to ministering the sacrifices with the priests. If you think of Old Testament priests, you're like, that's the guy who kills the goats, And they do do that, but there's more to being a priest than being a sacrificer. Our text today actually speaks remarkably little about the animal sacrifices. Not because the sin offerings by which people could have their sin forgiven were unimportant, they were very important. But before that, the priests are the keepers of the holy place. They are the ministers of God's presence. So at the very beginning of our passage, you could, we'll we'll do this quickly, but you'll look at 2721, Aaron keeps the lamp. Brandon gave us that great image last week of the lamp that fills the tabernacle with God's light. Aaron keeps that lamp glowing. In chapter 30, verse 8, Aaron keeps the temple or the tabernacle filled with incense, which we'll hear more about that incense from Mike next week. Even the high priest's garments, which we'll talk about in a minute, are meant to resemble the tabernacle. And essentially, he's an inside-out tabernacle, and we won't go into detail about that, but all of his clothes match the pattern of the, the different parts of the tabernacle, right? So whatever function the tabernacle serves, the priests make it happen. They bring it to life. I, as an Israelite, can't go into the tabernacle, but with the high priest, the tabernacle can come out to me, right? They mediate God's presence. They minister it. That brings us to this second point. The priests are mediators. And this is where we'll we'll turn to Exodus 28. The high priest especially is a mediator between God and his people, between the holy 
and the unholy. This is the core idea of everything, all these uh, elaborate details given about the priest's garments in chapter 28. If we read this, maybe you have in your GC or will later this week, you will be inundated with details about fabricating clothing in the ancient world. And it feels like a bunch of random details, but the picture that ties them all together is that what the high priest wears tells us what the high priest is. And it, it, it gives us to understand what he does, who he is. Let me, let me read the beginning of this passage for us. The first five verses. This is God's word, church. God said to Moses, Then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar, and you shall make for them holy garments. Holy garments. For Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. For glory and for beauty, you shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with the spirit of skill, and they shall make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. These are the garments you shall make, a breastpiece and a fod, which is like an apron that he'll wear, a robe, a coat of checkerwork, coat or, or better, a close-fitting tunic, his undergarment, a turban and a sash, They shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons to serve me as priests. They shall receive gold, blue and purple, and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. That's the the materials they'd make it out of. This is God's word. Aaron, the brother of Moses, was to be consecrated as Yahweh's high priest. And God commanded the people to finally craft holy garments out of the best materials they had that were symbolic of the holy realm so that they would be beautiful and glorious as they ministered God uh, for God. It was important that the priests were beautiful and glorious. Now, the fact that the priest had to put anything on at all tells us that whatever the priest is, it's not a casual thing. Not just anybody can go into the tabernacle. Only one robed in holiness can. And the quality of the garments tell us about the nature of the priest and the God who he represents, right? God is holy. He alone is holy, we sang today. God is glorious. God is beautiful. Therefore, his priests who represent him to his people have to resemble him. That's why there's all this detail about what the priest needs to look like. They need to resemble, they need to image the holiness, the glory, the cleanness, the beauty of God. Their garments were laced with gold threads and gold plates and chains. They were embroidered with this fine embroidered yarn of many colors. They would have been radiant, shiny, The holy garments belong to the holy space. They show holiness. The crown jewel of it all is in chapter 28, verse 36. I think in the ESV it says a gold medallion on his forehead. This would have been a plate of gold or maybe 
a rose-shaped medallion. But the high priest would have had this piece of gold on his face, and what's written on it? Holy to Yahweh, holy to the Lord. We talked in the Ten Commandments, there's that commandment, do not bear the Lord's name in vain, right? And we talked about how that means more than don't use God's name as a curse word. This is the same word. Aaron bears God's name on his forehead in gold. He represents him. He bears the name of the Lord. The point is that the high priest would visibly represent God's holiness and radiance to his people. The name of God would walk among the people on this plate of light-filled gold. It would shine on them. God or Aaron represents God to the people. The other side of being a mediator is that Aaron represents the people to God, right? He's the middleman. He bears the name of God, but he also bears the names of the people. And this, this Old Testament language of bearing someone's name is about representing them. He represents the people. See this, well, first look with me in verse 12. It says, and you shall set two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod, this outer apron he'd wear, as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders of remembrance. So he bears the names of Israel on his shoulders. Earlier, it describes these as two red onyx stones, two precious stones that they carved the tribes of Israel into. Israel was divided into 12 tribes, all their names Aaron bears or lifts up on his shoulders, okay? He bears the names on their shoulders for remembrance. So when Aaron goes into the tabernacle, that word remembrance is a covenant word. He's saying, I come into you appealing not on their merits, God, but on the commitment you made to them. On the commitment you made to them, your covenant with them. I'm appealing by the covenant. I lift up their names to you. The second place is on the breast piece, which would have been this pouch, probably, or plate that Aaron had on his chest, and it describes 12 precious stones on him. This is what it says in verse 29. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breast piece of judgment on his heart. Bear their names on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring regular remembrance before the Lord. Each of those 12 gemstones had one name of the, of the 12 tribes carved upon it. Isn't that a, a beautiful picture if you think about it? We started by talking about, yes, the people are not holy. They cannot enter God's presence yet. And yet, does God represent them as, you know, 12 splotches of mud? No. Put my people's names in gemstones on you. They're beautiful to me. Put the names of the people in gemstones. This is how Aaron intercedes for the people, walking into the holy place, bearing God's name on his head and the people's names over his heart. Imagine how this would play out for Israel. We... Later in, in Leviticus, talk about the sacrificial system. To have our sins forgiven, we need to sacrifice an animal, a substitute. It must die on our behalf. And once a year on the Day of Atonement, Aaron will 
wear these garments, shining. He'll walk where he alone can walk, behind the veil in the holy place, the holy of holies. This crushingly glorious place behind the curtain where the winged cherubim guard the Ark of the Covenant. And he'll make an appeal for the people. He'll bring the blood of their sacrifices and present it with their names lifted up before God as gemstones. And when he does, what that says is, God, remember your covenant. Remember your precious people. God, forgive them of their sins. Afterwards, Aaron would walk out with that shining medallion with God's name on it, and the people would know God is with us. Our offerings have been received. Our priest has interceded for us. So the people can't go into the holiness yet. The people require a priest, the high priest, to lift them up into God's holiness. They enter vicariously through him as as his representative. The priest ministers God's presence. The priest mediates between God and men. You can think of the holy garments that chapter 28 describes as a silhouette, right? They, they paint us a picture of what is the, the perfect priest supposed to look like. He's supposed to look glorious and beautiful. What is he supposed to be like? He's supposed to be holy. What is he supposed to do? He's supposed to represent God to the people. The problem comes when you have to put a person in those garments, right? Aaron wasn't a magic guy. He wasn't a sinless guy. He was just a guy. That brings us to chapter 29. Before, the, before we can go on to making the people holy, we have to confront the unholiness of the priest. Before the priest can work on God's people, God has to work on his priest. So 29 is all about the consecration of the priests, or the, the ordination, excuse me, the ordination ceremony. We see this, we'll read chapter 29, verse one. This is what you shall do to them to consecrate them, that they may serve me as my priests. Consecration is a word we used a couple times. It means taking something common and transferring it to something holy. To be transferred, it it can't be dirty, it can't be sinful, it can't be common, it can't be part-time. Aaron is wholly given over to this role. So we won't read all of this ceremony, but to summarize it, all those things had to happen to Aaron and the other priests. In verse four, Moses was to wash him with water because he was unclean. He had to get a sponge bath from his brother before he could be a priest. He had to be anointed with oil because he's common. He had to put on the holy garments once he was clean in verses five through seven. He had to put on the glory and the beauty and the holiness because he himself was not holy, beautiful, or glorious. He had to make two sin offerings, a bull and a ram, because he is a sinner. After that, finally, there was an elaborate ordination that involved two more sacrifices, another ram and a a grain offering to be initiated as a priest. He would be consecrated, uh, devoted to that role. 
But, but even after that, glance with me at chapter 29, verses 38 through 41. Once he was a priest, what did he have to do? He had to make two sin offerings every day, in the morning and at night. He had to constantly be reminded, Aaron, you're a sinner, and as long as your sin is unforgiven, you are useless as a priest. You can't have a lawyer defend you who's fighting his own defense case, right? Doesn't work. Aaron had to constantly make sin offerings for himself. There's this constant picture of he's not quite qualified for this. The people need a priest to bring them into God's presence, but they need a holy priest. They need a sinless priest. Let's pause for a second. We've heard about elaborate garments and a seven-day ritual for ordination. Maybe you're still hearing this and think, why the red tape? Does God want to be with his people or not? Feels like he's making this hard. If God loves us, why does he make it hard to get to him? Before that emotion sets in too deeply, let's, let's read the end of chapter 29. Verses, starting in verse 43. This is what God says at the end of the whole process. He says, once the tabernacle's finished and the priests are consecrated, this is what will happen. There I will meet with the people of Israel. And it, the tabernacle, shall be sanctified by my glory. My glory will come to the tabernacle and make it holy. He says this, I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. And Aaron also and his sons, I will consecrate to serve me as priests. And what's the result? I will dwell among the people of Israel and be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. So we must not forget, we are reading the instructions God gave graciously. God's gracious instructions of saying, this is how you can enter my presence. It is hard, but that's the point these scriptures are making. At the end of the day, the temple, or the tabernacle, and the priests were holy because God accepted them as holy. None of these rites or rituals are magic. None of them force God's hands, but they are pictures, instructions, demonstrations, and symbols of how hard it is for sin to be washed away, for the unholy to be made holy. These are all written for our instructions. They're types and symbols that God gave to Israel to teach us. And this is the lesson that they teach. We are mistaken if we assume we're fit to enter God's presence on our own merits. We're mistaken if we think we're naturally holy. But again, isn't God supposed to be love? Why would love repel rather than welcome? Why would God not want me near him? This is the point it's making. God does want his people near him. He's the one giving the instructions. But sin is not a trifling matter. Because God is good and God is just, he will not Ignore it. 
He must provide a way. Church, I think one of the reasons we have texts like this is to reckon with God's holiness. For it to make us a little sick to our stomach. Not because God makes us sick to our stomach, but because we're confronted with our own guilt, our own unworthiness. Even, even the, 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 fi- the finished picture of the priesthood with Aaron constantly making sin sacrifices for himself. Even he could only enter the presence of God once a year. Otherwise, it was behind a veil. Even his glory and beauty at the end of the day was fabricated. Literally, fabric. Do we think we fare better than Aaron on our own efforts? Praise God, that's not the end of the story, though. But the word for us today from Exodus 28 is that the need for a priest is not just an Old Testament thing. You and I need a priest to bring us into God's presence. I'm not talking about a man in a collar, and I'm not talking anymore about a man in an ephod, but we do need a mediator to consecrate us for God's presence. We cannot enter the Holy of Holies on our own merits. God would not accept you. Not because he's harsh, not because he's unjust, but because, precisely because he is just, because he is good, because there is an ultimate goodness that lives and breathes in God. But do you see also, that's why God puts the barrier at the bottom of the mountain. That's why God puts the veil before the presence not because he does not want to be with us, but because he delays in his mercy the time when his people have to confront and give an account for their sin. What does he delay for? He delays for such a time as they can be made holy. They can be made ready. You're not ready to enter my presence yet, but by this ministry you can be made holy. So the priesthood is not bad. It's not something that's abolished in the New Testament. But Hebrews 7.11 does tell us it is incomplete. It's imperfect. And it was further a picture all along of the perfect priest that God would provide. Hebrews 8.1 says Jesus is the perfect high priest. And church, we sang that earlier. A great high priest whose name is love, Jesus Christ. Do you see how he is a priest? One more perfect and better than Aaron. He had no need to put holiness on himself. Rather, as God, as the Holy One, he clothed himself in humanity to represent us. When we look at him, we see not a symbol of God's glory, but God's glory and holiness itself. Hebrews 1.3 says he is the radiance of God. He doesn't need to dress himself in glory and beauty. He is glory and beauty. Further, he needs no sacrifice to cleanse himself. We'll read this from Hebrews 7, 26 and forward. It was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. What is he like? He's holy. He's innocent 
unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. When Jesus died on the cross, when he rose again and ascended to heaven and went into the holy presence itself, not the copy of it, but the real holy presence and presented his death on the cross to us, it was sufficient. It was sufficient for us. To call Jesus a priest means just like Aaron, he bears God's name to us, but he also bears our names to God. To call Jesus a priest means that he has stones on his shoulders and gemstones on his chest, which every church's name is written on. Every Christian's name is written on. Right now, Jesus sits at the right hand of God with a gemstone on his chest that says, the saints at Church on Mill. They're covered. I am pleading their case. God, look on them as precious. Jesus alone is qualified to be a high priest. He sits eternally at God's right hand, mediating for us. And as God's word, he ever ministers God's presence to us. Friends, do not imagine that without Christ, you're good with God. Don't fool yourself into thinking you can have a special agreement with him aside from this high priest. God is merciful, and he gave this way into the holiness, into his presence. God provided that priest in Jesus. We today need a high priest to bring us into God's presence. Further. First, I'll say, if if you've never trusted in that high priest, call on his name today. Turn away from your attempts to sneak into God's presence on your own. Go by the easy yoke provided by your high priest, Jesus. He will bring you in. But we said there's a, a third role the priest is supposed to do. He doesn't just clear our debts and leave us at zero. He sanctifies his people. He transforms them. He makes them holy. In Christ, we are not forever stuck at the boundary of the mountain. We're not forever locked outside of the tabernacle. We are brought in with him because he transforms us, makes us holy. This is called sanctification process of becoming holy. The idea is that Jesus is not away in a temple, but he dwells in us through his Holy Spirit. His holiness is contagious. He does not save people and leave them as they are. Just like Aaron couldn't become a priest part-time and then go do whatever he wanted, he's fully sanctified, but he's fully transformed too. Jesus' holiness is contagious. Even that picture in chapter 29 that shows us Aaron's unholy, but there's a way he can be washed. 
Aaron's sinful, but there's a way he can have his sin cleansed from them. For all we say about how unholy we are, church, that is not who we most essentially are. Our status as sinful and unholy and unclean is not permanent. It can be washed. We can be changed. And that change is not a losing of yourself, but a gaining of yourself. It's letting go of your white-knuckled fist grasp on your life and letting it become what it was created to be in the first place. Now, sometimes we talk about the doctrine of sanctification as if all that it meant was, how am I doing with sin? Now, that's an important part of being more holy. Being more holy means being less sinful. It does. We want to define holiness in that case as something just purely negative. Holy means not sinful. Holy means set apart. It has that meaning, but I hope by looking at the images in Aaron's garments and the picture of the great high priest, you can see that holiness has a deeper dimension to it. Holy means what belongs to God and what is like God. When the angels in Isaiah 6 call God holy, 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 they're not just saying he's not sinful. That's true. But they're testifying to that glory, that beauty, that goodness, that cleanness. And for us to be made holy is for us to become like that. Right? We have to be consecrated. We have to be changed. But to be holy means to be fit for God's presence so that the holy fire that he is no longer burns us but is something that we participate in. This is a mysterious thing. This is bigger than our brains can grasp, but it is true, and it's what Scripture testifies when it says that being holy means being made beautiful and glorious. Think of that when Galatians 3.27 says, robe yourself with Christ. Put on those holy garments. Put on the glory and beauty and goodness of God. But do you see, this is what I hope we see, that if we think of holiness like that, as not just the absence of sin, but the presence of God, do you see how that makes it so much less um, legal and heavy sounding when we say repent of your sins? Church, to be clear, it is an unmistakable part of the gospel that to accept Christ is to repent of sin. God calls you and me to be holy, and first that means that we put off our selfishness. It means we put off our autonomy. It means we put off rebellion. It means we cease from lying. It means we cleanse our heart from sexual immorality and pornography. It means we no longer worship idols. It means we do not practice homosexuality. We give up greed and dishonesty. 1 Corinthians 6, 11 and 12 says, those who do those things will not enter the kingdom of God. They will not enter God's presence but God does not call you to repent of those things because he hates you. Not because he thinks, not, not because he is repulsed by your unholiness, but because his mercy is struck by your unholiness and he desires that you would be clean, that you would be beautiful. He calls you to repent of sinful things because they are the antithesis of life. First Peter says, your sins are waging war against your soul. The sins we indulge in are things trying to kill us. 
How can you come into life with death all stuck to you? How can you come into the light by crouching in the darkness? How can you be healthy by injecting yourself with viruses? Those are the sorts of pictures that would be trying to come into God's presence with sin still. Be like trying to be healthy while sick, trying to be alive while dead. That's why God calls you to repent of your sin. That's why God will not let people in his presence until he has saved them, justified them, and sanctified them. Do you see how beautiful holiness is? When you are holy, your heart mirrors God. In the same way, when God calls us to be holy, it's not a call for us to do that by ourselves, but to take the way he's provided. He will sanctify. He's not calling you to do it by yourself, but he will sanctify you. Jesus, our great high priest, is sanctifying us. If you are in Christ, this is the path you're headed down. Hebrews 10 says very clearly, it refers to the church as those whom he is sanctifying, those whom he is perfecting. It may take a long time, but it will happen, church, not because of us, but because we have this assurance, this sure thing in the holiness himself, Jesus Christ. In short, church, the work of Jesus is to make your soul beautiful to God. To make your soul beautiful to God. Precious diamonds set in his heart. Our great high priest is consecrating us. We need our holy high priest to consecrate us for God. Christians are holy to the extent that they resemble God to the world. We'll close with this. This is what Peter means when he says, you church are a kingdom of priests. He doesn't mean you make sacrifices and mediate to God for other people. He doesn't mean you forgive other people's sins. Only Jesus does that. But Christians are priests when they represent God to the world. So Christian, Jesus has justified you. He has sanctified you. He has called you now to be holy to the world. Again, that doesn't just mean I put away my sinfulness. That's the beginning and it's crucial. But here are other questions we might ask ourselves to see if we're growing in holiness. First, of course, am I growing less inclined to sin and more inclined to do good? Those are not the cause of holiness, but the result of holiness. We don't earn God's favor. We don't earn our way into his presence by doing good. But when Jesus is interceding for us, he will put good into you. Am I sinning less? Is my life becoming more and more devoted to God? But, but think about these other questions. Does my life reflect the joy of God? Does it reflect the beauty and the glory of God? Do I reflect that to other people? Further, do I enjoy a conscious sense of God's presence and favor in my life? As Christians, we all go through rich seasons and dry seasons of feeling God's presence, but God has made a place to dwell in you if you are in Christ. His spirit is with you. 
a sign of holiness is that you are conscious of God's presence in his life. That's the exhortation Hebrews gives. As an aside, go home and read Hebrews 7 through 10, tonight or this week. It's a better sermon than I can give on this text. You will be so encouraged by Hebrews. But the exhortation it gives is that we draw near to God in Christ now with confidence. With confidence, draw near. Are you conscious and confident before God? That doesn't mean we take God lightly, but it means we are confident and sure that Jesus brings us into his presence. These are signs of holiness, too. Is my soul growing more beautiful before God? I want to say one last thing about that. I think we face a danger of either underemphasizing holiness, not giving attention to God's holiness, wanting to undermine it, or I think sometimes as Christians we can overemphasize our unworthiness. Now, we spent a lot of time over here today because this text does. We cannot minimize holiness because it's an attribute of God. We cannot think, I earned my way into God's presence. His holiness is too great. The other warning I would give over here is we could go too far in moping about our unworthiness after Christ has justified us. It's important to recognize I am in God's presence purely by Jesus' work. But do you see anyone in the New Testament despair of how I'm so wretched and so awful? We might begin there, but there is a true change that happens to us, a true dignity given to those who are in Christ, a true confidence that we are called with to draw near. What that means is, if you struggle with sin and feel stuck, do not give up and say, this is, I'm just a bad person. Because you have a priest who will give you holiness. We are never trapped, we're never stuck. And God no longer, if we are in Christ, no longer looks at us as dirty or sinful. He looks at Christ and says, you're precious. I could say more, I don't know which of those each of us struggles more with or is struggling with right now. But if you don't know where you're at, my encouragement to you would be that that's what the church is for. Submit yourself to a brother or a sister who is mature and say, look at my life. Do you think I need, you know, here's, here's what I'm struggling with. Here's what's really going on. Do I need encouragement? Do I need to just trust the promises of God more and say, God, I believe you. You really have justified me. Or do I need to sit with my Bible and really let the weight of my sin sink in? Am I taking it too lightly? Most of us fluctuate between one of those two, but let your wise brothers and sisters help you see that. We're not called to do this alone. In all things, church, we who are weak in holiness have already failed in the route to, to get into God's presence on our own merits. But we who are in Christ are already there. 
we are seated with God in Christ. His holiness dwells in us and is transforming us. Find your rest in that fact. Find your relief in that fact. Find your peace in that fact. Those whom Christ Jesus justifies, he sanctifies. And there is your source of holiness. There is your way into God's presence. May we grow in holiness by the grace of God. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that by your grace, you confront us with your holiness and our sinfulness. We pray that that would give us a real sense of trembling before you, but not one that ends in fear or despair, but one that ultimately leads us to cling all the more joyfully, all the more tightly to the work that Jesus has done as our high priest. God, we pray as a church that we would have assurance, that we would have confidence in him, and that we would grow more and more holy, more and more beautiful to you, more and more light to the world every day. It is in our high priest's name that we pray. Amen.